0: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And yesterday, I published a tech news episode. Oh, uh, today's date, by the way, is July 28th, 2021, in case you're listening in the future. But yes, on July 27th, I I published a tech news episode and mentioned in that episode a story a fairly amusing story about how Alienware, which is the the Dell Computers subsidiary that focuses on building, you know, gaming PCs, recently acknowledged that the company was going to have to void orders from certain, you know, regions for a selection of gaming rigs and that these regions included six states. Those states are, by the way, California, Colorado, Hawaii, Oregon, Vermont, and Washington State. Now, the reason that Alienware was going to have to cancel those orders is that these particular models of these particular gaming computers exceed the energy consumption rates that are allowed by those states' regulatory bodies. So in other words, these states have limits on how much electricity a computer system is allowed to consume per hour. And these particular computers exceed that. So if you prefer to look at it a different way, these computers are too powerful, or really too power-hungry, and are thus illegal in six states. Now that's being a bit hyperbolic, but it's also a way to spin this that could make those computers seem really cool, right? Like if Alienware said, it's a computer so fast it's illegal in six states, that could sell a lot of computers. But anyway, this all got me to thinking about energy efficiency and power consumption regulations in general. So we have different certifications for energy efficiency. You might have seen different labels on stuff that claims that a particular product meets a certain set of standards for energy efficiency. And As I've just pointed out, there are some states that have some fairly strict limits on energy consumption. So what is the history here? How did all this develop and why? And what do these different certifications mean? And what is the history behind those? So today we're going to take a look at the issue of energy efficiency. Now, I hope by the end of this episode, you'll have a better understanding of why these regulations are in place in the first place and why certain areas might have greater restrictions compared to others. And you'll also know what that energy star label actually means when you see it on, say, an appliance or maybe on a home listing. So this episode, like most of my episodes, is going to focus largely on the United States because that's where a lot of this evolved. But there are other regions of the world that have similar stories. It's just that to cover a global approach to this issue would require an entire podcast series, not just an episode. Uh, However, it will involve global events, because as it turns out, some big events on the global scale impacted the United States' approach to energy consumption. So let's set the stage, and we do have to go quite a ways back to kind of cover this. So way back in the early 1800s, most Americans were living in rural areas, right? Like, in the first few decades of the 19th century, only around 10% of the American population were living in cities, Uh, Even by 1860, that percentage was still below 25% of the population. For comparison's sake, today, more than 80% of all Americans live in a metropolitan area. So urbanization plays a part of our story today. But as we'll see, the story is big and it has lots of moving parts to it. So another element is the rising dependence on fossil fuels. So up through the 1850s, one of the main resources used for stuff like lighting fuel, because, you know, this is before the light bulb, uh, was whale oil. But by the 1850s, whale oil was starting to get in short supply because of the shortage of whales, because of how they were hunted uh, extensively. But enterprising engineers learned how to produce kerosene by refining crude oil. And then in the 1860s, we get the first U.S. oil refinery, which takes raw petroleum and then refines it into a fuel that provides an alternative to coal, and thus the oil rush begins. In the latter half of the 1900s, the United States takes the world lead in oil production and refining, and provides around 85% of the global supply of oil in 1880. Other parts of the world are getting into the oil speculation craze themselves, uh, with countries like England and the Netherlands and Russia all discovering oil deposits. But the U.S. continues to lead the global stage in that regard. At the same time, inventors start creating new technologies that rely upon refined oil for operation. So a growing consumption of oil is going hand-in-hand, with the growing production of oil. So not only are we producing more of it, but we're finding new ways to use it, and thus the demand continues to increase along with the supply. Uh, We find and refine more oil, but we also consume more oil. And it's not like we quite hit an energy excess. Instead, we just find lots of new ways in order to need that good old bubbling crude. In the early 1900s, The rise of the automobile in the United States would further push oil consumption to new heights. And Ford would introduce the Model T in 1908. That was a mass-produced car that actually brought automobiles within the realm of purchase for a lot more households in America. So by 1910, the U.S. demand for gasoline had surpassed the demand for kerosene for the first time. Because, you know, kerosene was being used for things like lighting fuel and heating fuel. And now the fact that we were starting to see a motorized population in the United States meant that gasoline was becoming more in demand. And again, Ford's approach to mass production means that automobiles are actually within the grasp of a significant percentage of U.S. households. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And before 1908, the automobile was essentially a vehicle for the idly rich, right? Wealthy people could afford a car. No one else could until we started seeing, you know, the the principles of mass production applied to the automobile. So the U.S. rapidly becomes motorized, uh, much more rapidly than other parts of the world. You know, part like Europe was also getting motorized at this time, but at a much slower rate. And thus, the United States dependence upon oil grew significantly. As a result of this, World War I obviously would change things up quite a bit. Countries like Britain and France began to depend upon U.S. oil exports when they were, you know, needing fuel to help in their war efforts. Uh, And of course, the Germans worked to disrupt supply lines between the United States and these countries. And when the U.S. entered the war in 1917, The demands for U.S. oil exceeded domestic production. At that point, the U.S. was still supplying oil to its allies, but it also needed oil to provide for domestic use, right? For people back here in the States. And so, in order to supplement oil production in the U.S., the United States began to import oil from Mexico, because now it just couldn't produce enough to meet all the demands, By 1919, the U.S. Geological Survey comes up with a startling uh, revelation. An incorrect one, as it would turn out. But they didn't know it at the time. And that revelation was that the United States' supply of oil was going to run out within a decade. So by 1929, oil reserves were going to be gone. Now, at that point, the United States was producing around a million barrels of oil every day. And consumption rates meant that 90% of that oil was being consumed domestically. So again, that means that only 10% of U.S. oil was available as an export. Uh, everything else was, was immediately being used because consumption rates were on the rise. Meanwhile, overseas in the Middle East, Britain and France were overseeing regions that they called protectorates, though I'm sure the locals had less you know, nice words to describe them. The Middle East was proving to be rich with oil, and Britain and France were doing their best to keep U.S. oil companies out of the Middle East, because this way, you know, Britain and France, by overseeing these protectorates, could get access to that oil and thus remove their dependency upon U.S. oil. They wouldn't have to import as much because they would just essentially take the oil that was in these protectorates. By the late 1920s and early 1930s, oil diplomacy had become a major part of politics as various countries saw their energy needs hinging on access to oil production and oil refinery. So an agreement called the 1928 Red Line Agreement established an oil monopoly in the Middle East governed by the Iraq Petroleum Company, which in itself was made up of multiple partners, including an American oil company. And the agreement essentially laid out rules that prohibited these partners from independently drilling for oil outside of the partnership, you know, within this specific region of the Middle East that was defined by this red line. And they were all supposed to engage in what was called a self-denial clause. So if any one partner of this group were to pursue oil interests within this region, that partner would then be obligated to share that with other partners. They could not claim it for their own. Every partner within this uh, this organization uh, would have equal right to it, this Iraq Petroleum Company. And again, that was essentially a cartel. It was the the one authority for how the oil in this region could be uh, exploited. However, it turned out that the back in the United States that, that geological survey that said the US was going to run out of oil was totes wrong. And in fact, the US would begin to produce a surplus of oil, and that meant that the supply actually outpaced the demand for oil. And thus, if you have a lot of supply and lower demand, prices drop and oil prices plummeted. Now, the government tried to respond to this by putting in quotas for oil production, saying don't produce more than X amount in order to limit the effect of these price drops. Like So this was to protect oil companies from you know having financial disaster because suddenly the stuff they provide is so plentiful that they can't make a profit off of it anymore. Uh, By the way, the Supreme Court would later overturn those quotas. But then we get up to World War II, which obviously really complicated things. Uh, For one thing, Mexico took the step of nationalizing oil production within that country, something that many other countries would do in the following years. And in the process, Mexico revoked U.S. oil concessions, which was a move that the U.S. did not counter for fear that if it did counter that, if it put any sort of political pressure on Mexico, it might push Mexico to align with the Axis powers in World War II. So again, politics plays a huge part in this. Now, during World War II, the United States begins to ration various resources and luxuries, and one of those resources is gasoline. The U.S. government issues gas coupons, which limits how much gasoline citizens are allowed to get, and also institutes a national speed limit of 35 miles per hour, again, to cut back on consumption. Uh, you know, the, the the slower speeds would mean less fuel consumption, even over great distances. Now, by the end of World War II, this would completely do a 180. At that point, Consumption would boom. Returning soldiers start buying homes and houses and appliances. At least, you know, if they were white, they were able to do that. Uh, There's plenty out there about the unfair practices that disproportionately harmed people of color who were coming back from World War II. Anyway, there's a proliferation of inventions around this time that gained popularity. Everything from air conditioners to refrigerators to televisions to brand new automobiles, including gas guzzlers. And here's the thing: at the time, there was plenty of oil to power all that stuff. Whether it was, you know, using oil in the process of electricity generation or oil being used in order to refine it into gasoline. There was enough to go around. It was a time of plenty. The U.S. also starts to reach out to Saudi Arabia at this time and establish connections, just as that nation was discovering enormous oil fields within its borders. It would actually take a a few years before the United States would import a massive amount of oil from Saudi Arabia, but this is where the foundation was laid in the mid-1940s. And from 1945 to 1950, we see a transformation in the United States. The increased consumption requires more oil than the U.S. can produce. Finally, demand is actually outpacing supply. So in 1945, the U.S. is a net oil exporter because it's producing more than it needs. But by 1950, it's a net oil importer, bringing in nearly a million barrels of oil every day. This was just the beginning of a trend that would see the U.S. import more and more oil from other nations, including the Middle East. In 1952, the Prime Minister of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh, nationalized the oil industry there. Not by coincidence, just two years later, there's a military coup in Iran, supported by British and U.S. intelligence. By the end of 1954, there's a new Iranian government headed by a shah, who agrees to allow U.S. oil companies to manage Iran's oil industry. So technically, the companies don't own the oil, but they're allowed to manage the industry. Uh, This, you know, this is, again, another one of those cases where you see energy and politics just tightly intertwined here. Then we get to the Suez crisis, which was a very complicated affair that's best left to some other podcast than mine. And by 1959, the U.S. faces another oversupply of oil. So President Eisenhower issues an import quota, and that limits foreign imports of oil to no more than 9% of domestic production, saying, all right, well, let's not bring in more and, and completely destroy this economy. Uh, While we'll have plenty of oil for our energy needs, we would also, at the same time, undermine the industry that it's built upon. So the following year, in 1960, a group of countries, including Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, and Iran in the Middle East, and as well as Venezuela in South America, all form a group called the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC. Now, the reason that they did this was that the United States and various nations in Europe had been essentially dictating things like oil prices without actually consulting these countries, In fact, a lot of the countries where the oil was coming from. And so these, these nations like the United States and, and various countries in Europe were largely seen as being exploitative. They were exploiting the resources of these other oil-producing countries for their own advantage, Now, it would take several years before OPEC would actually have enough political leverage and economic leverage so that countries like the United States would even really pay attention to them, but that would come to pass. And then we move ahead by like a decade, a little more than that, and we come to a conflict that, depending upon your perspective, you might call the Yom Kippur War, or you might call it the Ramadan War, you might call it the 1973 Arab-Israeli War. That conflict began on October 6th, 1973, and it lasted until October 26th of that same year. Now, this was the fourth in a series of major conflicts between Israel and various Arabic nations in the Middle East. And it largely stemmed, this particular one largely stemmed from a demand that uh, Egypt was making to Israel. Egypt was telling Israel to return certain territories that Israel had received in the previous conflict, the Six Days War, and Israel declined that demand, and then hostilities followed. Well, a full discussion of these conflicts, again, goes well beyond this show. I imagine the hosts of Stuff You Missed in History class would put together a phenomenal breakdown of the incredibly complicated scenarios that led to these conflicts. But for our purposes, the salient point here is that on October 19th, two weeks into the conflict, The then-U.S. President Richard Nixon sent a request to Congress to extend $2.2 billion worth of emergency aid to Israel, which was a move that Arabic countries would protest. I'll explain more, but first, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So in response to the United States extending aid to Israel in the form of $2.2 billion worth of it, the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Companies, so kind of a subset of OPEC, elected to raise an oil embargo against the United States. Now, this had happened once before in the conflict in 1967 between Israel and Egypt and Syria and Jordan. That was the Six-Day War I mentioned before the break. And during that time, Arabic countries placed an oil embargo on all of Israel's allies. But at that time, the United States was able to offset that embargo with domestic production. So it didn't really affect the U.S. that much. But it was a very different story in 1973. In fact, 1973 was a particularly vulnerable time for the United States. While the country had placed an import quota years earlier due to that oversupply I mentioned where, you know, the U.S. could not import more than 9% of domestic production, otherwise you would have oversupply, well, all that had changed by 1973. Oil production in the United States was lagging behind the demand for oil. So this Oil embargo ended up having a much larger effect on the U.S. in 1973 than the one from 1967. Gasoline prices rose by 40%. Now, you know, that that conspicuous consumption that had really driven the 50s and 60s was unsustainable in the 70s. The big gas guzzlers that were the hallmarks of U.S. automotive industry were now a liability. Politically, the U.S. government moved to form a plan to gain energy independence by 1980. Spoiler alert, that didn't happen. Advisors were pointing out how energy dependence on imported fuel sources isn't just a matter of energy, it's also a matter of national security. And so... In the early to mid-1970s, we saw the first programs launched dedicated to improving energy efficiency and lowering energy consumption. The oil embargo lasted until March of 1974, but the effects of that embargo would stretch on much further. The experience really emphasized a need to reduce energy consumption so that when things are tight, the U.S. economy would not grind to a halt. And so we started seeing some big changes. Like here in the United States, one major change that happened was the U.S. government passed a mandate that capped highway speeds to 55 miles per hour. Now, these days, that's not necessarily the case. It can vary from region to region, But as a kid, I remember that all highways had that as the top speed limit, 55 miles per hour. At the time when I was a kid, I just assumed that those limits were there because somewhere some number crunchers figured out that there was a balance between letting people get to where they needed to go within a timely fashion and cutting down on the severity of traffic accidents. Except It wasn't really about safety, it was about conserving gasoline consumption. That's why that speed limit was there. Now, the state of California would lead the way when it came to setting energy efficiency standards. The state established energy consumption standards starting in 1974. California has the largest population of the 50 states here in the United States, and the energy crisis was keenly felt in California, especially when it comes to gasoline. The matter was somewhat mitigated in that most of California actually has a pretty mild climate, so that reduces the need for energy consumption on a per capita basis for things like heating and cooling. That's not as big of an issue in California during most years. During the era of climate change, it's a different story, but we're talking about the 70s here. So the key here is that California has frequently led the pack when it comes to energy efficiency and power consumption policies. In 1975, two really big things happened that relate to this podcast. One is that I was born. And without me, this episode wouldn't exist. I wouldn't be here to talk to you. But the more important thing for this topic is that the United States government passed the Energy Policy and Conservation Act, The goals of this piece of legislation were many. One was to give the president more executive options in the face of an energy crisis in order to speed up the response process. So if something goes wrong, the president can do something about it quickly without having to go through all the the bells and whistles that you would normally have to do. Another was to increase U.S. energy production while simultaneously lowering energy consumption. So produce more, but use less, in other words. Part of that focus was on creating rules about efficiencies with a large focus on automobiles. This is where we start to see rules for a minimum miles per gallon rate for vehicles. So in the early 1970s, the average miles per gallon rate for a passenger car in the United States was around 13 to 14 miles per gallon, which is pretty bad. And there were some gas guzzlers that were way worse than that. The new legislation set standards that car manufacturers would need to meet in order to, you know, sell their cars or to receive certain incentives or subsidies. And in 1978, that minimum was set at 18 miles per gallon and it went up each successive year, like with it reaching 27.5 gallons by the mid 1980s. Now, the law also gave authority to the newly formed Department of Energy in the United States to set energy conservation standards for equipment and appliances. So, the Department of Energy began to set minimum efficiency standards for a selection of different technologies. In 1978, An oil workers' strike in Iran escalated to an outright revolution, with the Iranian Shah fleeing in 1979 and the country coming under new leadership, the Ayatollah. And in addition, a group of Iranian students seized the U.S. embassy in Tehran in 1979 and took more than 60 Americans hostage. The U.S. President, Jimmy Carter, leveled an embargo on oil imports from Iran, and oil prices escalated to more than twice the going amount as a result. Following that was an oil shortage in the United States with long lines at gas stations and super high gas prices. President Carter signed the Energy Security Act, which encouraged the pursuit of fossil fuel alternatives. Now, at this stage... The reason for doing that was primarily because of the continuing political and economic dependence upon fossil fuel imports. It was not because of the environmental impact of fossil fuels. That also is a factor, but the main concern here was if we're dependent upon fossil fuels and we're getting a significant percentage of our fossil fuels from foreign sources and then foreign conflicts break out... We're kind of up the creek, so we need to find a different way. And that's why this act was about looking into alternatives for fossil fuels. In this era, there was a lot of activity, uh, there was a lot of innovation, and there was a lot of failure in the realm of energy efficiencies and lower energy consumption. By that, I mean organizations attempted to take some steps towards energy conservation, but with varying degrees of success. Sometimes it was the smallest of actions, like it was telling companies, hey, put up signs that tell people to flip off the light switches at the end of a day so that they're not wasting electricity. And that's important, and it does reduce waste, but it's kind of a tiny drop in the bucket compared to some other activities. There were companies that were producing products that claimed to help reduce energy consumption, like plug this in between, you know, your outlet... And whatever it is you're, you're using the electricity for, like this would be a go-between that somehow would magically reduce the amount of electricity you were consuming. But a lot of these were of dubious effectiveness and amounted to little more than a black box that didn't really do anything at all. So they were scams, in other words. Most of them were. This is something we still encounter today, in fact. Manufacturing companies were having a little bit more impact. Guided by the requirements of the Energy Act of 1975 and a subsequent amendment to that act in 1979, companies making big appliances like refrigerators and washers and dryers and air conditioners and that kind of thing began to innovate in being able to do more while consuming less energy. The days of seemingly endless energy were long gone, and now the name of the game was figuring out how to outperform the competition while still being energy efficient. California continued to lead the way. New standards in 1978 set new goals. The state uh, consulted with various engineers and energy experts to draft the standards. And further, those standards would increase the efficiency requirements every three years automatically. So you would have a certain set of standards. Three years later, those standards would get more strict. Three years after that, they would increase again. They would do so no matter who was in office. That included the building code in California. So every three years, the building code would get more strict. And there were numerous benefits to this approach. One was that, due to those higher standards, Californians were starting to consume less energy on an individual basis, which meant their electricity bills were going down. People in California were spending less for electricity. Even as electricity costs would increase, the consumption was going down, so the bills were going down. The standards also meant that California didn't have to go into a phase of building out new power plant facilities. They didn't have to increase production, in other words, because they were reducing consumption. And obviously, if they had increased production and built more power plants, that would have had an enormous negative environmental impact. So this also helped cut down on smog generation, which was a a problem that was huge in California, to the point that if you grew up in the same era that I did, you probably associated the word smog with Los Angeles. Like, that was a defining feature of LA. And it didn't appear to come at the cost of California's economy. In fact, California's economic growth outpaced that of the US as a whole. So the state was able to do this and not have it make a negative impact on economy. That's often a counter-argument to adopting environmentally friendly or energy-efficient processes, is that it could have a negative economic impact. But in reality, in the regions where we see states and, and other countries adopt more restrictive regulations, we don't tend to see a huge hit to the economy. That seems to be uh, a fallacious argument. So, There were both federal and state energy efficiency regulations at play here. And if you are in the United States, the ones that apply to you depend entirely on where you reside. For example, I live in the state of Georgia. Now, according to the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, my state ranks number 42 out of 51 in the United States. And you might say, hey, the United States only has 50 states. Well, the A-C-E-E-E is also including Washington, D.C. in this scorecard. That ain't great. And uh, the neighboring states to Georgia, at least to our right and left, are kind of in a similar boat. So South Carolina, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana all rank in the 40s. But some other states like Vermont... Massachusetts, Washington State, and several others have adopted energy standards similar to California's, and they have a much better track record when it comes to energy consumption. Now, before I move on, I should also point out that you can't just compare apples to apples. There are a lot of factors at play here. For example, the southeastern United States has a climate that's pretty brutal for about half the year. Although with climate change, I think we've got some pretty stiff competition now. But we often have very hot, very humid summers, and that means we're frequently using more energy to keep cool during those months. But honestly, over the past few years, we've seen a lot of areas of the country hit just as hard, if not harder than we are. So that story is changing over time. Now, I've got a lot more to say about energy efficiency. But before I get to that, let's take another quick break. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I've mentioned a couple of things here about energy efficiency and the factors that that play a role, but there are a lot of other complicating factors that also come into play. So the economic and political issues with oil provided the initial urgency to move toward energy efficiency, but then there was also this growing awareness of the environmental impact of fossil fuels that was developing around the same time. Now, there were environmental activists working hard in the 1960s and 1970s, of course. But, uh, you know, the I think an event that really brought this issue into the national focus was a man-made disaster that happened in 1989. That's when the Exxon Valdez An oil tanker carrying more than 10 million gallons of crude oil struck a reef off the coast of Alaska and spilled its contents into the region, and it caused an unprecedented man-made environmental disaster. So this was in the news day after day, complete with disturbing videos of the impact on the Alaskan coastline and the wildlife. And it would stand as the worst oil spill in American history until 2010. That's when Deepwater Horizon, when that oil platform, released even more oil in the Gulf of Mexico. But arguably the Valdez was one that was far more visible because of the impact it had on that region. Now, while these were acute disasters with a a truly enormous scale... There was this growing understanding in the general public as to the effects of fossil fuels on the environment in general, even without disasters. The idea of greenhouse gas emissions, of the emissions of various chemicals that could lead to acid rain, like these were things that were starting to become clear in the american consciousness around this time. And so, around the late 80s and early 90s, we saw the conversation around energy consumption include not just energy costs and efficiency as in you can save money by switching to, you know, more efficient technologies, but now we also had environmental impact become part of the conversation. So the story gets a bit more complicated in other words. And Interestingly, these days, you're far more likely to see energy efficiency conversations contextualized as an environmental issue, which, don't get me wrong, it is an environmental issue, but it's also all these other things that we've already talked about. You know, it's also a national security issue, it's an economic issue, it's a political issue, etc. It's all of these things at the same time. Personally, I believe if you reduce it down to just one factor, it's misleading. Now, admittedly, it's way easier to talk about if you reduce it down to one. You know, that, that makes it easier to message, but it, it actually reduces how important this is on multiple fronts. So, this brings us up to 1991. That's when the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, introduces a program called Green Lights. The EPA formed on December 2nd, 1970, under the executive order of President Richard Nixon. And the purpose of the EPA was to consolidate the U.S. government's environmental responsibilities. The government was responding to various environmental crises and issues, and this was a a way of kind of focusing Government's role with that regard. Now, over the years and over the various presidential administrations since 1970, the EPA's role has changed a great deal. But on January 16, 1991, it initiated the Green Lights Program, which pushed for U.S. organizations, including companies and government agencies, to adopt energy efficient lighting. Now, at the heart of the matter here was energy waste. According to the EPA, 25% 25% of all electricity consumption at that time was going to lighting. And stuff like incandescent light bulbs were highly inefficient. With most of that energy, the vast majority of the energy sent to these light bulbs going into, turning into waste heat rather than light. In fact, incandescent bulbs only convert somewhere between 5 and 10% of the energy they receive Into visible light, and the rest is waste heat. Fluorescents or CFL bulbs are far more energy efficient than incandescent bulbs. Uh, Commercial and consumer LED light bulbs, like the kind used, you know, that you would use to light your room, those really didn't have a presence in the early 90s. Uh, They are obviously available today, but those are even way more efficient than both incandescents and CFLs. But let's get back to green lights. So the EPA was advocating for a move for less wasteful, you know, light lighting solutions which would not only provide an environmental benefit but would also lead to lower energy consumption. Thus, it would cost less to use these kinds of light bulbs in the long run. The bulbs or the tubes or whatever would last longer, they would use less power, And that meant over the course of a single light bulb, the organization would spend less money on it. That would mean that the organization would actually profit off of cutting back on waste. It might be a higher upfront investment to buy CFLs over incandescents, but over the life of that CFL, you would more than save the money you would have spent on a larger number of incandescent bulbs. So this was a pretty good message. And it would also be part of the move to abandon incandescent bulbs. I mean, you can still find some types of incandescent bulbs today, especially like those specialized like Edison bulb types. But for the most part, we've moved away from those. The EPA stated, quote, Every kilowatt hour of electricity not used prevents the emission of one and a half pounds of carbon dioxide, the most important greenhouse gas, also 5.8 grams of sulfur dioxide, a principal component of acid rain, and 2.5 grams of nitrogen oxides, precursor to both acid rain and smog, as well as the pollution attendant upon mining and transporting power plant fuels and disposing of power plant wastes, end quote. So the EPA was taking a pretty big-picture approach with this messaging, of which I approve, because when we get a really narrow focus, we miss out on a lot of stuff. In 1992, the EPA made another move, one that would have a big effect on the consumer electronics industry. And that is when the EPA launched the Energy Star label. Now, the program identified energy efficient products with a special Energy Star label or sticker. Products that matched or exceeded the energy efficiency standards that were set by the EPA would qualify for this designation, which would serve as a guide for consumers when it came time to shop for various types of technology. When we come back, I'll talk a little bit more about ENERGY STAR to explain how it works. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the EPA first launched Energy Star, which would eventually actually incorporate the Green Lights program that that had launched the year before, Green Lights would then incorporate into Energy Star. Well, when it launched it, the focus was on computer systems and computer displays, or rather, I should say computer monitors. Display as being far too (laughs) grand to describe what we were using back in those days. So this kind of gets at an issue that we saw with Alienware and its computers, because the six states that Dell is not going to be shipping Alienware computers to, or these specific models, I should say, all have energy standards for computers that the Alienware models don't meet. They exceed those standards. They're not as energy efficient as is required, so they cannot be shipped there. According to an EPA publication that was celebrating the 20th anniversary of the launch of ENERGY STAR, the program was uh, apocryphally sprung from an office tour that the then director of the EPA's Atmospheric Pollution Prevention Division took back in 1990. So the idea is this director is walking around an office after hours, just taking a look to see what's going on. And according to the story, he was upset that a number of the employees at the EPA were not shutting down their computers at the end of the day. And his point was, we know that increased energy consumption leads to increased greenhouse gas emissions, and that this in turn affects climate change. And yet, we, the people who know this, and who are in charge of trying to protect the environment, are doing this. So the machines were continuing to run after hours, consuming electricity, and thus contributing to air pollution. And so he saw the need to launch a program that would encourage technical solutions to human problems. If people were too lazy to turn off their computers, or if for some reason they believed that turning computers off and on again too many times would decrease the useful lifespan of those machines, there needed to be some sort of technology solution to encourage computer manufacturers to build in standby or low-power modes that would engage automatically after some period of inactivity. Now, the EPA says, this story is only kinda sorta true And that there were, in fact, a lot of people working on ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and how to create a path for companies to go that particular route. It wasn't enough to say, this will cause less pollution. There needed to be some economic incentives as well. So here's your proposition if you're the EPA. You tell companies, hey, Here's how much money you're spending just to keep those machines running when no one is there to use them. That's just money down the drain. And businesses hate throwing money down the drain. Now, I mean, some businesses are actually pretty free with their cash. And you could argue that some of the stuff that businesses spend money on effectively is the same as throwing it down the drain. But they prefer to feel like they're getting something out of using cash and just spending money to keep computers running when no one is around to use them doesn't really make the cut. So then you got these companies which need to use computers wanting a solution to an economic problem. And this creates an incentive for the computer manufacturers who want to land those sweet orders with big businesses to provide, you know, a truckload of computers for an office. So the computer manufacturers, have an incentive to create a more power-efficient computer to meet the expectations of these customers who in turn see these computers as an investment both in resources and in decreased wastage. And along the way, we see electricity being used by the organization's computer systems, Uh, at a lower level, and that means less of a load on the power grid and ultimately less of an environmental impact. So this is kind of like 3D chess, y'all. Now, I should also remind you that back in the early 90s, computer monitors, as I, I kind of alluded to earlier, were different. We are not talking about flat LED displays that are really energy efficient. I'm talking about Big ol' honkin' electricity-hungry cathode ray tube or CRT monitors. Sometimes these things weighed more than a small child. And they were not energy-efficient devices. So the EPA launches this market-driven approach toward energy efficiency. Totally voluntary. This is not like you must meet these qualifications or you're not allowed to produce monitors. Instead, it's if you meet these, then you get an energy star rating. You know, that energy star rating was originally for computers and monitors that would go into a low power sleep mode after a period of inactivity. That was pretty much it. Uh, This mode meant that they should consume 30 watts or less when they're operating. So when they're in sleep mode, it should be 30 watts or less to keep them in sleep mode. As long as it met those criteria, then the Energy Star label could be slapped onto those products. And that Energy Star label would then give consumers the heads up regarding which systems were compliant with these specifications. Even if they didn't know what the spe- specifications were, they knew, oh, this particular monitor has an Energy Star label on it, which means it consumes less electricity. And no one was required to do this, it was totally voluntary. But following those specs meant a company could include that ENERGY STAR label and that became a marketing tool. And the program saw some early success and before long the EPA began to extend the ENERGY STAR program to other types of technology. At first it stuck around with office technology and then moved on to things like like printers instead of just computers and monitors. So the idea here was that Corporations and offices have a lot of technology in them, and it gets a lot of use, right? And thus, if you get a few big companies to make the investment into lower energy uh, consumption, high energy efficiency products, that would have a bigger impact than trying to convince individual consumers to follow suit. So the strategy was that the companies would lead the way, and then consumers would also follow along. And for the most part, that was true consumers looking to save money on their electric bills or those who are concerned about the impact that their lifestyle was having on the environment. And to be fair, there was some overlap with those two groups. They began to rely on the Energy Star label as one of the factors that would matter when they start making a purchasing decision. I mean, if you got to go out and buy a new fridge it kind of makes sense that one of the criteria you consider is how much energy is that fridge going to require? How much is that fridge going to cost you in electricity bills over the course of you owning it? And getting one that's going to cost you less while having the features you want just makes sense. So the EPA expanded beyond consumer products with its Energy Star program, and in 1995, it extended the program to evaluate homes so that people looking to buy a house could look for homes that meet Energy Star specifications. So stuff like insulation and energy-efficient doors and windows and all this kind of stuff would all count toward an Energy Star designation, which would tell the consumer, hey, I'm going to have to spend less to heat or cool this house. Uh, because of that label. And I have the good feeling of knowing that it meets these requirements and I'm going to be less wasteful and thus have less of a negative impact on the environment. Now, I think a big thing to take away from the Energy Star program was how it helped create a market-based solution for energy efficiency. By creating a designation that gives consumers an idea of the impact of any particular product, the EPA created a way for manufacturers to try and stand out against the competition. And then that created a market pressure that meant other companies needed to follow suit or else get left behind. If your products do not meet those ENERGY STAR standards, and your competitors do, then you might see a negative impact in sales. And so ENERGY STAR, in that sense, was a really big success. It pushed companies to create more energy-efficient products. Meanwhile, we saw both the federal government and some states put into place tougher energy consumption standards. Uh, So in 2005, the U.S. government passed the Energy Policy Act, That legislation set new appliance energy standards. It also created new tax incentives designed to encourage more efficient use of energy and lower energy consumption in general. Growing energy prices prompted another law in 2007. That was the Energy Independence and Security Act. This again increased standards in various areas regarding energy consumption. And as the name suggests, the goal is to find an equilibrium, or or better case, in which the United States energy needs are met by the United States energy production, making it unnecessary to import stuff like oil from other countries. This was a big focus of the proposed hydrogen economy, the idea being that if the United States could transition from a fossil fuel based economy to one based on hydrogen, we would have no need to import oil from foreign sources. Of course, the problem there is that switching to anything besides fossil fuels is big and and expensive, and hard. We've got an infrastructure for fossil fuels that dates back more than a century. There's a lot of inertia that's built up there. Further, while hydrogen is the most abundant element in our universe, it's also the type of element that bonds with other stuff. So in order for us to get hydrogen so that we can make use of it, for the purposes of energy, we first have to exert some energy in order to break those chemical bonds and free up hydrogen. So unless we do that in a way where the energy in the hydrogen is greater than whatever energy we had to pour into the system in order to get the hydrogen, you're at a losing proposition. But the hydrogen economy is really a matter for another episode, and in fact I have covered it in the past. Generally speaking, energy efficiency remains a pretty big topic. I would say that most of the time we see this conversation revolve around the environmental impact of fossil fuels and the issue of climate change, and these are undeniably important and big and real concerns. And energy consumption definitely plays a part here, as electricity production makes up one quarter of total greenhouse gas emissions in the United States, and transportation is 29%, so even more than electricity, at least according to the EPA. So energy efficiency standards really matter here. They can make a huge difference. And as we move forward, with an increased emphasis on switching to alternative energy sources and moving away from fossil fuels, as well as push toward electrifying the fleet of vehicles out there, energy efficiency will continue to be a critical part of our strategy you want to be efficient, you want to have lower energy consumption, that's going to be important for all sorts of things. With electric vehicles, it will be important for the, you know, the purposes of how much driving range do you get with this car? Because we can only make batteries up to a certain size before that starts to become an issue too. You start seeing res- issues like weight and safety and other things play a part. So you have to say, well, if we can make more efficient use of electricity, then a charge on this battery will allow this car to go much further than if we're not careful, right? So there are a lot of reasons to be careful with energy consumption, even should we make the move away from fossil fuels. So that, I think, is a good encapsulation of the concept of energy efficiency and energy consumption and why it's important to have these regulations and standards in place, and that it is more than the climate. Like, If you're the type of person who doesn't see the big deal about climate issues, well, I I don't understand that. But even if you are, there's still the matter of the fact that it just makes more economic sense to be more efficient with your energy usage. And if money doesn't matter to you and the climate doesn't matter to you, I'm wondering how you ended up getting equipment to be able to listen to a podcast. But anyway, that's it. For this episode, I hope you learned something. I hope you enjoyed it. Like I said, there are a lot of complicated parts of this story that I hope are being covered in other podcasts because I would also love to hear them. uh, And they are important for us to have an understanding of how we got to where we are and helps inform us of the decisions we need to make to get to where we want to be. All of that's really important. If you have suggestions for topics that I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, I welcome you to reach out to me and let me know. The best way to do that is on Twitter. The handle for the show is H S W, And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I-can't-believe-how-simple-that-is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com.